You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Hey everybody, this is Chuck Marone with Strong Towns. Welcome back to the Strong Downs Podcast. It has been a while. My apologies for that. This is a weird culmination of events. Summer vacation time, uh, but also, you know, lawsuit stuff and uh, some big staff changes here in the works at Strong Towns. Nobody leaving, lots of people being added. We're going to launch some new programs here in the next few weeks. And for better or for worse, I am the... Uh, <laughs> I'm the president of this August organization. And so that means that I'm kind of in the middle of all of it. And, and I apologize to all of you, but the thing that tends to slide in my schedule is sitting down to, to do a podcast. It's not that I haven't wanted to. I've really wanted to. In fact, I've got three or four that I'd, I'd like to do. I might try to squeeze off a couple of them uh, here after this one. But this one is a little bit urgent. And I kind of felt the need to sit down and do this one today because the stuff going on in Jackson, Mississippi is, is very raw. It's very real. It's very urgent. And I felt like I just, I, I wanted to put some thoughts into your brain. So as you watch the, the tragic footage going on there and you see the things that are happening, you have some Strong Towns context for it all. A lot of you have been asking me to comment on this. And I actually wrote on Twitter, I, I didn't feel like I knew enough to actually say, well, I've done a little bit more research and well, I'm, I'm not going to say that I know everything about what's going on. Uh, it's a little bit better. So for, for those of you that don't know, or for those of you that maybe are reading this later, Jackson, Mississippi is under a citywide boil your water emergency. And some places in Jackson have been denied water completely. They don't even get the unsafe water. And their treatment facilities are down. It's a, it's a rolling catastrophe. People are saying it might be weeks, it might be months. Things might never go back to normal in Jackson. And of course, all the, the photos of people with bottled water, uh, lots of reports of misery. Uh, it's, a, it's a devastating situation, something that no city should have to go through. I'm going to talk about today some of the immediate causes. I'm, I'm going to explain to you the best of my ability what has happened now, in a sense, the straw that broke the camel's back, the, the proximate causes. I'm going to then go into some of the underlying causes. And this is where I'm going to give you a narrative that's going to run counter to the, the narratives that you're receiving. I want to start all this, though, with an acknowledgement that this is horrible. Um, this is a tragedy. Uh, the people of Jackson deserve better. The people of Jackson are suffering. They are paying for a water system that is not working for them. And we're going to get into why here in a bit. The reasons that it's not working are understandable, but not acceptable. And this is a horrible, tragic situation. And I think we should all start this conversation. We should all start our thoughts when it comes to Jackson, Mississippi with a deep amount of empathy for the people who are there, the people who are suffering, I'm going to say suffering needlessly, but suffering not as a result of anything they have done, right? 
And so I, I think we should all start with a, a huge amount of empathy for people who are caught up in this. So let's look at the, the immediate causes. And I, you know, when, you, when you parse out the news reports and things that are going on, is sometimes difficult to get to the bottom of it. I'm not going to claim that I know and understand everything that's going on, but it seems to me that Jackson has had for a long period of time problems with their water system. Uh, that That is evident. That is very clear. I, I listened to interviews from years ago from people who owned restaurants and other things saying like, look, we're just used to boil water orders. It happens all the time. Let me explain to you what a, a boil water order is, particularly when it's isolated to an area and not citywide. So a water system is under pressure, right? Uh, you have, I say that right, as like everybody understands this, a water system is the water in the pipe is under pressure. If you cut a hole in a water pipe, if a hole is popped in a water pipe, the, the water will shoot out, right? When you open up your faucet, the water comes out. That's because it's under pressure. Your sewer system, on the other hand, the drain in the sink is not under pressure. Nothing comes shooting out of your drain. When you open up your faucet, the water comes out, it pours down the drain. The drain is not under pressure. Two different systems. If you think of a system under pressure, the water is tending to push out and the pipe is supposed to be sealed tight and that keeps the water from going out. When there's leaks in the pipe, water is gonna leak out. The, the idea, though, here is that because inside the pipe is on greater pressure than outside, the water will tend to go out from the pipe. If you have a sewer pipe, it's the opposite. Sewer systems are, are you know, famous for when they get below the groundwater table, if they have uh, any leaks in the pipe, the groundwater will actually flow in. That's because the pressure outside in that water is greater than the pressure in the pipe, which is just air. So the water will flow from out to in. The general kind of way a water and wastewater system will work near each other is that water from leaks in the water system will flow out to areas of less pressure and water in a sewer system will flow in, again, to areas of less pressure. You're always going from greater pressure to less pressure. When your system loses pressure, and this can happen for a number of reasons, a pipe bursts and you know the, the pressure diminishes in the pipe because of that. Um, your pumps go out and you're no longer pumping water into the system. Your pumps go out and you can no longer fill up your water tower, the water tower. I mean, the reasons we have towers way up in the air and not just a big tank on the ground is because they do more than just store water in them. They actually create the pressure. When we pump water into a system and raise the elevation of the water tower, what we're doing is we're creating a lot of pressure. Right? If you're at the bottom of a swimming pool, you can feel the pressure on your head as opposed to sitting you know, six inches below the surface. That pressure is because of the weight of the water. The water in the pipe pushes up, pressure pushes up, fills up that water tower, and as the water tower drains, the pressure starts to, to go down. If you're not keeping the water tower full, you will lose pressure. If you lose pressure in your pipe, what will happen is that water will start to flow the other way. Instead of leaking out, water from outside the pipe will leak in. And this doesn't automatically happen. I mean, if the pipe is in dry ground and there's there's not anything around it, it, it doesn't mean that contaminants will automatically leak in, but they could. And there's a likelihood if it's an old pipe and an old system that it will. And so what happens is that you have the potential for contamination in that pipe. 
thus the, the boil water order. That's kind of a localized one. If you lose pressure in the entire system, which is what has happened here, uh, you will start to get this on a system-wide scale. And the boil water order is, in a sense, an acknowledgement that the system's not pressurized the way it should be. The system's not functioning the way it should. The system's not reliable. My understanding of the specific disaster that has happened now is that it has two kind of related causes. The first one is the flood. There is a flood that overwhelmed one of the treatment facilities. Water is taken from a reservoir. It's put through a treatment process. That treatment process will often have things like a sand filter where the water will flow through sand. Any sediment, any uh, thing that's in there uh, will get taken out. There are then different layers of disinfection. I think they're using chlorine here. Sometimes you use UV light. There's different ways of doing this uh, to kill pathogens and other things in the, in the water before it's sent out into the pipes. My understanding is that one of those treatment systems failed. It was, it was flooded and it is inoperable. Like they cannot use it. That means that the water needs for the city of Jackson would need to be handled by another treatment facility, a second treatment facility. And while that facility hasn't flooded, because of the sediment in the rain, in the stormwater that has filled the reservoir, the reservoir water is, and I'm just going to say it in a non-technical way, it's dirtier, it's muddier than what it otherwise would be. In a technical way, it's got a higher bio, uh, biochemical oxygen demand. It's got a lot of stuff in it that we need to take out before it's shipped out into the pipes. Um, the problem with that is that it takes a lot more treatment. It takes a lot more effort. And if you've got to run water through you know, coagulation, where you bring all those sediments and things together, then run it through some type of filtration, that has to be maintained and backwashed. Uh, there's only a certain rate you can process this stuff in. If that rate is not able to keep up with the general demand, which my understanding is, is it's not, even in good times, they couldn't operate with one facility, now add the need for, in a sense, extra levels of treatment, and that second facility can't keep up. And in fact, it sounds like even some of the pumps in the second facility have gone out completely. Maybe they were overworked, maybe they were overburdened because of the, the extra work they needed to do to, uh, to perform this treatment, but those pumps have failed and the system is not getting the water it needs to stay pressurized. This is a disaster, right? Um, but these are, these are, in a sense, proximate causes. And I'm, I'm going to go back to the statement I made earlier, which is, this is like the straw that broke the camel's back, right? Like, this is the thing that pushed them over the edge. But Jackson, Mississippi, and their water system in specific, was really, really, really fragile before this all happened. I mean, this is not something that is going to surprise anybody who has spent, uh, you know, lived in Jackson under these boil water orders for decades now or anyone who has studied this particular situation for any period of time. This is kind of like something, in a sense, waiting to happen. As we've talked about municipal insolvency at Strong Towns, and, and this has really been the major focus of our movement and our organization, is our capacity to make good on these promises that we make to each other through local government as part of living together in a community. I have made the statement many times that every city in North America is financially insolvent. 
we've all gone on this suburban experiment. We've all developed ourselves with a business model that at its core is functionally insolvent. And because of that, every North American city is financially fragile. Every North American city is stretched too thin, more thin than their resources can sustain. And every single one of them is in a very fragile and increasingly fragile state and will someday have to deal with failures. Failures, and I've used the word default. Now, there's been people who have pushed back on this and they've said, well, Chuck, if this is true, where are the bankruptcies? Where are the, where are the municipal bankruptcies? Where are the cities that are going broke? And I've always said, I don't think that it's the bondholders that are gonna get stiffed here, right? Jackson, Mississippi, is what default looks like to me. You know, Detroit is what default looks like to me. You live in a city and you have an expectation that when you call the police department, they'll show up. When you call the fire department, that they'll be there within a reasonable amount of time. Those things don't happen. That That is a default on a promise that's been made. When you're in Jackson, Mississippi and you turn on your water faucet and you expect clean uh, drinking water because that is what you have been paying for, that's what you were promised, that's what a city is supposed to provide and that doesn't happen, that, that is a default. That, that is what default looks like. That's what fragility played out to its end insolvency looks like. I want to point out a couple things about Jackson's financial situation. Recently, and I, I want to say this was at the end of last year, S&P gave Jackson a A-plus rating, an investment-grade bond rating on their municipal debt. So according to S&P, Jackson is financially doing great. Jackson even floated a water enterprise fund and Moody's took at that, took a look at that. Now, again, decades of boil water orders, not being able to deliver water as you've promised, having difficulty keeping plants running, not having redundancies, having a really, really fragile system. Moody's looked at this last December and said, you know what? Uh, your water enterprise fund rating of BA2, which is just two steps below investment grade. So th this is almost investment grade level of financial rating. I point this out because I want to make two things clear right off the bat. First of all, if you're looking in your city to your financial rating as some type of indication of fiscal health, understand that even the most struggling cities are getting great financial ratings, right? Like that, that's Those ratings are not for you. Those ratings are not telling you anything. They're telling bond agencies, they're telling investors that, hey, if you put your money here, you're likely to get it back with interest. But they're not saying anything about you or your city or your city's capacity to make good on their promises. And, and that's the other point that I want to make here is that this is what default looks like. Default does not look like bondholders getting stiffed. I think it should, but it doesn't, right? It doesn't. What default looks like is the residents of Jackson suffering. What default for the city looks like, the city has overextended itself, has more promises in the ground, more things that it said it will do than it has the capacity to meet. When they default on that obligation, it's not the bondholders who get hurt, it's the residents of Jackson who get hurt. That's what default looks like. That's what's not doing your math results in. I feel like the story of Jackson here is, is really simple, right? A city that has overextended itself 
in the suburban experiment, one that has suffered under uh, this post-war development model we have. Josh McCarty at Urban 3 put together some fascinating numbers because part of what you hear coming out of this now is that, well, Jackson is, in a sense, like a Detroit of the South, right? Uh, Detroit famously lost all this population. You know, all of our major cities lost all this population after World War II. And Detroit had white flight. They had all these people leave and, and oh, it's horrible what's been left behind. Same to Jackson, right? Jackson was this great city and then everybody left, everybody affluent and they left all the poor people behind and massive disinvestment. I want to point out a couple stats about Jackson. I'm not going to give you the numbers because numbers aren't nearly as interesting as just the degree of change. Since 1960, so really since kind of midway through the first generation of this post-war expansion, the suburban experiment, highway building just starting to, uh, to ramp up. And 2020, so a couple years ago, in that 60-year period of time, Jackson has grown its land area by three times. So it has tripled in size. Jackson, over the last 60 years, has tripled in size. It's three times bigger than it was in 1960. That's three times bigger, meaning roughly three times more roads, three times more pipe, three times more sidewalks. There's, there's all this additional stuff. They've grown horizontally, bam, 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 three times over the last six decades. In that same period of time, their population has grown by only 6%. So they've increased their population from 144,000 to 154,000 but they triple the land area. This is the same thing that I've seen here in in my little hometown. At the end of World War II, we were roughly 14,000 people. Today we're roughly 14,000 people, but we're like 10 times the land area. We've invested all this uh, this money in building roads and building pipes and building new stuff out on the edge, but we have the same number of people. So the same number of people are being asked to take care of and maintain and provide service to more and more and more and more place. And as we know, in the Strong Towns lens of looking at things, all of that new growth has been not only at the cost of what was there originally, let's talk about that in a second, but but everything that's been added is in this horizontal context, this one life cycle, slash and burn kind of development pattern that is really, really high cost and really, really low return, low financial productivity. And so Jackson, Mississippi has burdened itself with six decades over two generations of horizontal growth that has robbed it of its capacity, that has stolen its ability to make good on these promises that they've made, while at the same time overloading them with even more and more promises. If we go to the core of Jackson, the core that existed in 1960, it has likewise been summarily torn down, devalued, disinvested in, and highways run through the middle of it. The investment that was once there, not only denigrated and devalued, but oftentimes completely torn down to make way for parking lots and parking ramps and other auto-oriented kind of business development. This financially is a disastrous business model. And it results in the kind of fragility that we see now, the lack of options and the suffering of people. I want to talk about a couple of the narratives that have been put forth to explain this, because of course, 
We're in this national political zeitgeist. Every local story has to be exploited for some type of national crusade, some type of national campaign that we are running. I think you could look at Strong Towns and say, okay, you guys are doing the same thing. Uh, fine, all right, <laughs> I'll accept that. I wanna push back on a couple of the other campaigns that are out there, three in specific that I think are, are just wrong. And I'm gonna ask you now for the next however many minutes it takes me to do this, to try to suppress your own political sensitivities. Because I'm gonna talk about some subjects that are very politically sensitive and I'm gonna do it because I want you to see the context in which this suffering in Jackson is going on. It's not something to be exploited for a national cause. It's, it's not something uh, that we should be overriding kind of our current zeitgeist, our current political narratives onto as a way to kind of score some cheap points. We actually, particularly in our cities from our bottom up, a bottom-up approach, we, we have to move beyond these simple narratives because Jackson is not some weird anomaly. It's like a preview of coming attractions. When I say that your city is financially insolvent, this is what I mean. You will ultimately get to a point where you have boil water orders. You will ultimately get to a point where things fall apart and you can't fix them. So the first of these kind of imposed narratives I, I want to talk about is climate change. Now, nothing I'm going to say now is going to dispute the idea that climate change is happening. I just want to push back a little bit on the idea that somehow Jackson, Mississippi can be explained through the lens of climate change. There's an article in Bloomberg that tries to make the case that, you know, extreme weather was a, a, a significant factor in Jackson. And they say this line, uh, they say the city's water system failure is, quote, a stark warning of trouble to come as climate change piles new stress onto the essential services Americans rely on every day. Now, that may be a true statement, okay? And I'm not going to argue that climate change and climate, uh, you know, just, just volatility is going to stress fragile systems in ways that they have not been stressed before. In this very Bloomberg article, however, they say just three paragraphs later, quote, the rain wasn't record setting or even as bad as initially predicted. In other words, this is a very normal event in Jackson. This is not some crazy, you know, once in a hundred year event that's now happening every five years. This is just standard run of the mill kind of stuff. And I want everybody here to understand that if climate change were not occurring, if we didn't have to think about climate change in any way, and I'm going to suggest to you that climate change was not a factor in what we see right now going on in Jackson, even if climate change is not an issue even that we're even thinking about or that we care about or that is happening in any way, this problem still occurs in Jackson. There is not a, in a sense, cause and effect here that independent of if humans weren't out driving around and spewing carbon into the air, this never would have happened. That is not true. This happens regardless of any climate impact. 
And I want to emphasize this, not because it's a gratuitous point in any way, but because when you listen to the engineering professions, when you listen to the climate advocates, when you listen to the politicians talk about what we need to do to react to climate change, they will say, we need to go out and almost in a military mindset, harden this infrastructure. And let me interpret that for you. We need to go out and build more. We need to build it deeper. We need to build it bigger. We need to build more stuff. And building more stuff is what has caused this problem in the first place. The response that comes out of the climate narrative being imposed on this particular situation is the idea that we need lots and lots of money to go out and build lots and lots of stuff. There's nothing worse that we could do in response to Jackson than to spend a bunch of money building a bunch more stuff. That is actually the core of the problem. Next, I want to talk about race. And I'm going to do this in a superficial way. So I'm not trying to make some deep polemic on, on race and race relations in this country. I, I'm wholly unqualified to do this. But I want to point out because everywhere that I turn, you know, if, if I go back in time and listen to old things uh, being discussed, uh, I don't get the race narrative. You know, if I go listen to people on the ground and I, I watch YouTube videos and I, I bring up old podcasts that talk about this stuff, race is, is there. It's certainly an issue. But now today, it's impossible to read an article or listen to a, a news report or what have you that doesn't bring up systematic racism and the like. Vox predictably had an article very about this. I'm going to quote, uh, the roots of this crisis run much deeper and are inextricably tied to white disinvestment from a majority black city. Vox goes on to say that this water system is failing, quote, largely because white flight drained the city of resources. Again, I am going to acknowledge my lack of capacity and insight uh, to really comment on race relations as they intersect with Jackson, Mississippi in particular. I am from the North. I'm from a small town in Minnesota. I have been to Jackson. I have been all over Mississippi. I've been all over the South. In many ways, the, the, the race conversation is perplexing to me. It, it's a different culture. It's a different conversation than the one we have up here. I'm not suggesting ours up here is good either. But um, I'm not going to stand here and pretend that I have deep, deep insights on race or some universal kind of thing that should be said. But I, but I am going to say, beyond starting this podcast with a deep amount of empathy for the residents of Jackson, who, like I said, are suffering not because of anything they've done, but as victims of this whole thing, and 80% of them are black, I am going to say that it is not white flight. It is not broad white disinvestment that has drained the city of resources. The population of Jackson has grown 6%. The area of Jackson has grown three times. It's tripled. That math just doesn't work. And whether it is white people or black people or a, a mixture of the two or affluent or non-affluent, let me put it this way. If you are an affluent community and you triple the size of your community, you triple your amount of liabilities while only growing your population by 6%, that business model does not work. 
if you are a very poor community, it works even worse. In other words, the 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 fragility of it is going to come to a head a lot sooner. Your ability to, in a sense, mobilize resources to you know, forestall the inevitable decline is a lot more difficult. You you don't you don't have access to politicians the way others do. You don't have access to money from Washington or the state capital that others do. I, I get that. I get that affluent places are able to leverage their access to power to keep their status longer. That doesn't mean the underlying business model works in either place. And let me throw a bone to the people who are very interested in the racial aspect of this. I get that what has gone on here has created a racist outcome. And for many, that is the definition of racism, right? If there's a racial disparity in outcomes. But that racial disparity in outcomes is not because of a lack of resources being spent on infrastructure. It's not because of white flight and white disinvestment. It is because the underlying business model does not work. It leaves a place fragile. It leaves a place vulnerable. And the places that are most fragile and the places that are most vulnerable are going to see the impacts earliest and harshest. And that is going to offend our sensibilities, and rightly so. I get it. But it's not like Detroit is an anomaly. I've said many times, Detroit is early to the party. Jackson is early to the party of decline. But we can see decline throughout all of these areas. We can go out to the white neighborhoods around the core of Jackson, and you are going to see in the places that were built in the 1960s, in the 1970s, in the 1980s, you are going to see decline seeping in. You are going to see local budgets stretch thin. You're going to see huge backlogs of deferred maintenance. You're going to see the Ponzi scheme in effect. It's coming for every place. It's not just these. And I'm pushing back on this because the narrative that comes with this, this imposition, right, from the outside of this is huge white disinvestment that's drained the city of, uh, of resources. The, the, the response to this then is more investment. The federal government needs to step in and make up for the local white disinvestment on the ground by doing what? by building more sewer systems, by building more water systems, by putting in bigger pipes and making it deeper and making it stronger. This was the narrative of Flint for many years. Oh, the federal government has, uh, has abrogated their responsibilities. The state government has, has uh, done Flint wrong. And I, I agree with both of those statements, but not by not you know, maintaining their systems for them. They've done them wrong by inducing and building and subsidizing and creating a system that has given Flint three times the amount of infrastructure that it can handle, that has induced Jackson to triple its size in a way that did not increase its overall population. That's the disservice that has been done. I'm sympathetic to this argument that this is disproportionately harming in this case, this is disproportionately harming black Americans. Our neighbors in Jackson, 80% black community, is suffering because of this. If race is a motivating factor for us in wanting to do something, I think that, that that's fantastic, like great. I don't want that to be the explanation because the explanation leads us to places that are not going to be helpful for the people of Jackson. 
it's not going to actually get us to a system that is going to be scaled to their community. It's going to actually help them have a base of, of growth and viability. My background is in working in many of the small communities around Minnesota. And these were places that were 100% approaching white. And I saw the same exact thing where we would go in and under the guise of helping people who were poor and disadvantaged and left behind, we would build them more infrastructure than they could possibly maintain or possibly even make use of. And we would do that because economists have this narrative that more infrastructure means more growth and more growth is good. Politicians have a narrative that if we can bring home the bacon and build it, uh, that they will come and that this will be great and everyone will benefit. The engineers, uh, the planners, the other people that are involved in delivering this infrastructure are able to pat themselves on the back and go home at night saying, we helped this city do great things. I did that when I was a young engineer. I you know, helped cities uh, that were in dire straits build way more infrastructure. I was very proud of that. But as we walked away and you look in the rearview mirror, what you see is that you have saddled communities with massive long-term obligations. And if the people of Jackson today look around and say, here's what we need to do as a community to make ourselves strong, to make ourselves prosperous. Here's where we need to invest. Here's, here's, here's the types of things we need to do to help ourselves out. Prior generations have already decided those options are off the table because the money and the resources and the capacity you have in Jackson has to go to fixing a water system that never should have been built in the first place. And we can go back and rebuild it for them. We can go back and say, all right, let's have the federal government make good on the, you know, the, the white disinvestment that's happened in, in Jackson, Mississippi. Let's have the, the federal government step in and fix that. I mean, I think that would be like the kind of ultimate goal for many. What have you done? You've maybe bought them a little bit of time but you've not dealt with the underlying financial insolvency problem. You've not fixed the productivity thing. You, 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 you've not changed the re, kind of remorseless math that says, you know, this tiny number of people cannot possibly take care of and maintain this massive amount of pipe, no matter how affluent they are. It's just not gonna happen. It's not going to work. The math does not make sense. And so, for those of you that want to step back and hear the narrative of racism as cause and effect, please resist that and understand that there are deeper forces at work. And I say please resist that because the outcome of that cause and effect uh, kind of narrative is to say, well, let's go in and do the right thing. And if the right thing is building more stuff, we're actually just doing a massive disservice to the people of Jackson. This is having a huge racist outcome, no doubt. But my friends, buckle up. This is what's happening in every city. This is what's happening in every fragile, vulnerable place. This is what is the next generation of our existence is going to look like in places around North America. And if we don't come up with a different way of understanding this, if we don't come up with a more accurate way of grasping what's going on and a different approach to actually dealing with it, we're going to make the situation way, way worse. And we're going to run out of capacity before we run out of desperate cities. And then everybody's in a world of hurt.
The third narrative that's being imposed here, and, and I'm, I've just spent some time pushing back on two progressive narratives, the climate change and, and you know, the idea that this can be reduced to uh, you know, white disinvestment in black neighborhoods. I'm going to touch on a, a kind of Republican, I, I hate to say conservative, I'll use that term just so we know where we're speaking. I'm so tuned out to conservative messaging right now. But this is one that has kind of punched through to me in Twitter and in Facebook and other places, because I've seen people, as I'm doing research to figure out what's going on in Jackson, if anyone you know, shares any information about it, one of the first five comments on it or responses to it is going to be, this is a Democrat city, what do you expect? When Democrat politicians run a city, this is what you get. You get things that are incompetently run, you get systems that go broke, you get pipes that break and aren't fixed. This is what democratic governance gives you. And it's sometimes spoken out loud, it's sometimes undercurrent. You know, these are places that are more obsessed with what the name on the school building is than actually picking up the garbage in the day. So what what do you, what do you expect? Obviously, I don't buy this narrative either. Yes, there are many cities that are poorly run. There's a lot of leadership out there that has the wrong priorities. There's a lot of this stuff that, you know, out of sight, out of mind until it becomes a horrible mess. But every Democratic city, every city in America, Democrat or Republican, is dealing with massive backlogs of maintenance liabilities with no real plan, with no real concept on how to deal with this, except to slowly watch their city fall apart and try to, you know, forestall, put off that reckoning. I want to make a point. I want to maybe slightly exaggerate for the sake of making the point. So hang with me here a little bit. If we look at, and this is going to be a very coarse analysis because I think the world is actually more complicated than this, but if we step back and we look at just presidential voting the last couple election years and we say blue areas, urban, red areas, rural, purplish areas, suburban, right? go back and forth either way. Of those three areas, which are the financially most fragile? By far, not even close, not even anywhere in the realm of each other. It is the red rural America. Financially, these cities are on the brink of collapse in many, many places. They are cities that are broadly speaking, wards of the state, incapable of maintaining their basic infrastructure systems without massive ongoing subsidies from state and federal governments, period. There is no small town in America, no city under 15,000 that I have ever interacted with in any substantive way that is anywhere close to being able to maintain you know, their sewer system, their water system, without huge financial infusions from outside, from the state government, from the federal government. And AKA, a decade ago, we would have been talking about that being subsidy from urban areas. I don't know how much subsidy we're talking from urban areas anymore, as much as we're talking about just, you know, printing, making money out of nothing and, uh, you know, just massive credit expansion. Either way, however you look at it, if we were going to line up cities from uh, you know their most fragile places to the least fragile places, that would be a line highly red on the most fragile 
and blue on the least fragile. Nobody's going to be strong, but the worst of the worst are all going to be in the red places. Now, a lot of this is suburbs too, right? And as we've talked about with the suburban experiment, growing in this fashion buys you a generation of prosperity. You're the brand new place. Everything's brand new. Nothing has high maintenance costs yet. You're growing, growing, growing. The growth covers up any financial insolvencies in the short term. Then all of a sudden, bills start to come due. Uh, neighborhoods start to experience stress. Uh, the backlogs start to grow. You use debt. You raise taxes. You try to grow your city even more. You use tax subsidies. You start doing all these things to try to generate growth and keep things going. And then you reach the third generation where those tricks no longer work and where the debt becomes too high, the tax rates become too high, the amount of decline starts to overwhelm the stuff that's being well-maintained and taken care of. And at this point, the affluent people who are remaining leave, and there's very few of them still there at, at this point. This is the suburban Ponzi scheme, right? This is the life cycle of the American development pattern. And you know, a lot of these places uh, tend to, if you dig into them, and again, I'll go back to the presidential election, a lot of these purple places tend to be places that are further in the life cycle. The ones that are deeper tending to blue and the ones that are tending to red uh, tend to be newer in the life cycle. To me, we, we look at a lot of our differences here in this country in a political sense. You know, when we demonize the other side, we have narratives to explain how evil they are and horrible they are. And I step back and I just look at, where, you know, where, where are you in the life cycle of the growth Ponzi scheme? Rural areas are net importers of capital. They've liked that position. And uh, they've created a narrative of freedom and independence that, that they use to explain it. That narrative is wrong. It's right in some ways. You know, I live in a rural area. I do know how to change the oil in my car. I, I you know, I do know how to chop down a tree. I do know how to, uh, you know, clean a chicken. Like there is a certain like rugged independence that you you have here that's different from my friends who grew up strictly in in the city. But that being said, we're a long ways from that, right? Uh, we're a long ways from from that kind of living. Uh, my city is a is a ward of the state, without the urban politicians voting to give us money regularly, uh, this city would not be able to maintain anything really that we've built. Very little of it. Um, the suburban areas, you know, you have this degree of how new are they? If they're new, they tend to have more affluent people, more middle-class, more upper-middle-class. If they're a little bit older, they tend to have uh, middle-class, lower-middle-class, working poor in them. That's just because of the degree of decline that has set in. The trajectory is kind of set here, right? Depending on your age. So this narrative that Jackson somehow is, because it's a blue city, because it's a Democrat-run city, is somehow uniquely dysfunctional, is not only the, the incorrect narrative, but again, I think it leads us to a really bad place. If somehow all of Jackson's politicians were kicked out of office and you got a whole cast of conservative, fiscally prudent Republicans who came in, which, okay, where are those people? <laughs> but let's say you did. Let's say tomorrow the city was all of a sudden run by a bunch of accountants. 
there would be huge changes, right? Because none of this makes any sense financially. But let's say you got the, the Republican cast of politicians in there. And so instead of focusing on what we're going to rename the elementary school that was you know, formerly named after a past president, instead we're worried about what is going to be in the history book of that elementary school. We're still not talking about the garbage. We're still not talking about making the city fiscally solvent. We're still not talking about the cost of service. In fact, a lot of those places I've experienced are sometimes the worst in terms of fiscal prudence because they'll look at something like a sewer bill or a water bill and they'll say, well, sure, the water utility needs a 20% increase in their rates just to kind of take care of some emergency problems, but that would be a tax increase and we're not going to do that. So get out the duct tape and bailing twine and make it work. I want to push back on that narrative because I think that narrative is, is equally as wrong as the other two. Here's where I want to get to with this because, you know, right now Jackson is, as I said, suffering. I don't have an easy fix for that. In fact, I think it's important to point out, and I don't do this with any degree of glee, and I don't do this uh, in any gratuitous kind of way, but Jackson's current situation is not a choice. It's not a policy choice. It's not like we are choosing to have this outcome and that there are other outcomes available to us. The current state of Jackson, Mississippi is a consequence. It's a consequence of past choices. It's a consequence of the things we have done. And I, I feel like if there's a lesson to be taken from what's going on in Jackson right now, it's this. Nobody's coming to bail you out. Nobody's going to come and fix this stuff for you when it goes bad. Yes, the national politicians will show up. They'll wring their hands. They'll impose, you know, these narratives to try to get, you know, their aims accomplished. You know, you'll get a lot of newspaper press, a lot of TV press to send on your place and find compelling stories to write about. Sure, all of that stuff will happen, but they're not going to fix your system for you. And if you doubt me, go, go to Flint and ask them. Go to Detroit and ask them. Go to Buffalo and have a talk with them. Nobody's bailing out these places. There's massive amounts of suffering. If we don't want this to happen, we have to address this ourselves. We have to roll up our sleeves, ask a very different set of questions about the public investments we make, about the things that we collectively do in our city, about how we build wealth and capacity. And yes, those are issues we need to talk about, especially in the poorest and most struggling communities. Let me just make a little tangent on that and, and say this as a definitive, real statement. The cities that have, the places that have the most upside potential in terms of building wealth and capacity are our poorest neighborhoods. We have shown at Strong Towns time and time and time again that the neighborhoods of greatest financial productivity in almost every city in America, the only places this isn't true is the places that have undergone dramatic levels of gentrification, which Jackson has not. The places that have the greatest levels of financial productivity today are the poorest neighborhoods. They're the areas with the greatest financial upside. By financial upside, I don't mean a corporation coming in and buying that and transforming it. I mean taking 
the people who are there, our neighbors, the people existing in the city, and helping them grow their wealth by 5%, 10%, 15%, 20%, year after year after year, making modest investments in a place. If we want to be compassionate to the people who are there, the people who are struggling, compassion looks like helping them build the capacity to actually solve their own problems. Because solve their own problems is all they're left with. Nobody's going to come and bail you out. Nobody's going to come and fix this stuff for you. The, the largest infrastructure bill in the history of the country that was just passed a year ago is going to make the maintenance problem worse. It actually doesn't even allocate enough money to maintain the roads and the infrastructure we've already built. We are going backward. Don't be part of that. Don't be part of that. If you want to get started today in your place, start with the, the four-step approach that we've created at Strong Towns. How do you identify the best investments in your community? You go out and you observe where people struggle. You ask yourself the question, what's the next smallest thing we can do to make this struggle a little bit easier? You do that thing and then you repeat that process over and over and over. Small little investments over a broad area. You get a real balance sheet. Understand where your community's wealth is. You're going to be shocked because it's generally in some of the oldest, poorest, most rundown places. That's the places that are subsidizing the rest of your community. That's the place where you have lots of wealth. Start showing those places some love, right? Stop making things worse. There's no need to annex more property. There's no need to build more infrastructure, no more pipe in the ground, no more roads, none of this stuff. We don't need it. Let your neighborhoods evolve. We need our places to be able to respond to stress in novel ways. Let your single family homes become duplexes. Let your duplexes become quad units. Let your neighborhoods shift and evolve and change over time. Save them from the massive inflow of capital that is trying to take advantage of them, prey on them and utterly transform them. Protect them from that, yes, but don't do it in a way that locks them in amber. Allow the people there with the ingenuity, the innovation, the entrepreneurship to make better use of their place. Redirect the tools you have to help your people. I wrote a whole thing about reparations and what it would look like at the local level. If you go to Strong, if you go to if you go to Google, just like Strong Towns local reparations, you'll get a write up I did about Kansas City. And at the end of that is a whole kind of plan of how a city on its own could choose to invest in its own neighborhoods. We have all these tools that we use now today for the outside developer, the outside money person, uh, the outside corporation that wants to come in. Those tools can be scaled, right size down to the block level, the neighborhood level, and we can energize these places. We can help the people there who are ready to help themselves. This and more is part of a Strong Towns approach. And I want to end this by saying not only do we have to recognize that no one's going to come and bail us out? That, that is a, a hard, cold recognition that we have to come to grips with. But if we do that, I think it opens up and allows us to recognize that we do have lots of tools to make our places better. We have lots of tools to make our communities stronger, more prosperous, more productive, better places to live, financially stronger and more successful. And we can do this in a way that doesn't depend on uh, federal government largesse, doesn't depend on 
benevolence of the state. doesn't require us to sell out to corporations that are going to come in and exploit our workers, our communities, our places. And it doesn't require us to somehow look at the people who have gotten up and left our communities as in some ways you know, more desirable people that we should be trying as hard as we can to get back. These are all destructive narratives that have been overlaid on a current development pattern, and we need to break free of them. Because we can go to a place like Jackson and we can see people suffering. We can see people going through hard times. We can see people experiencing uh, what default looks like in the suburban experiment. But we also need to see people who are entrepreneurial, love their place, care about their neighbors, are ready to work together to roll up their sleeves and fix some of this stuff. And we have to, if we do anything from the outside, is alleviate the burden from them so that they can actually accomplish that. That's what it would mean to build a strong town and we all need to get started on this in our places. We only get started on it right now. As I said, Jackson's not some weird anomaly. It's not some place that climate change is destroying. It's not some place where white flight has, uh, you know, created massive disinvestment that you know no other place is going to experience similar distress. It's a preview of coming attractions. As so a we need to shift our business models at the local level to be bottom up, to be strong towns. Thanks everybody for listening. I'm going to try not to have so much time between podcasts. Uh, be patient with me. Lots of big announcements coming. Lots of great things happening at strong towns. Boy, we are being inundated with, uh, with, with you, which is wonderful. I'm trying to keep up. We're all trying to keep up. Be patient with me. And in the meantime, of course, keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Take care, everybody. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Oh, Magnet City! I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah.